Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, September, what is it, 13th? Yeah, sure. 13th, yeah. 2020. Yeah. Um, and uh, so right away we need to say happy birthday, Nico. Yes, happy birthday. Because Nico's birthday is coming up this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we have a, a lot of birthdays actually floating around, but... Uh, uh, we can't get to all of them, can we? No, we can't. That we would have be a lot to really cover. taxing my memory. It's a lot to cover. I mean, time is money. What a great time to have a birthday. It's a beautiful time of year. Finally, it's cooling off here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's great time to have a birthday, but not a great time to be cha- uh, carrying a child uh, through August. In your, Good in luck, your, and your, you know who you are. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, there is that part of it, right? Right. I, I carried a child in August. Yes, I'm well aware. Gave up early. <laughs> now, what do you mean you gave up August early? 28th. August 28th? That's yeah. not giving up early. No, they had signed me up for uh, giving birth on Labor Day, I think. Did they? And I said, hell with that. They... Let's get this thing out of here. Yeah. Okay? City, right. Let's move along. That's not the way I remember it. But okay. Fine. Uh, so, we've had quite a busy week. Um, Shh. What? Don't tell anyone. What? We went away. Yes. Okay. Just, yeah. just spit it out. Let's. let's but but let's, it was in New York. Yes. So it was, it was in New York. Within our area, our, tri-state our, bubble. Yes, we're in the tri-state bubble. And uh, we went to Mohonk right. Mountain House. And uh, Mohonk Mountain House, which is a wonderful uh, resort. It's not wonderful. It's extraordinary. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Uh, and we've been to before, but of course the question is. Um, uh, what's it like during the pandemic, right? Because it's right. a large hotel. And uh, and the answer is, uh, honestly, it's pretty much the same. I mean, I, I didn't feel it was terribly different from our normal stays at Mohawk. Did you? No. But, was, I mean, they did take all precautions. Like they had all kinds of precautions. Yes, but and they, you wore a mask everywhere, mm, except in the woods. Right, except outside. But even in the woods. Yeah. They had occasional signs okay. saying, okay. But that's diver- put on your mask when you see okay. people. Let, let's, let's do the divergence. There's the signs, which I guess is for the authorities, and there is the actual behavior. And people use common sense. I mean, if you see signs that say, you know, put on a mask if you see somebody, well, you don't really do that. You do that if someone really comes in close proximity. That's different. So how it's observed, I think it was observed in a fairly sensible way, which is to say that you didn't see... Uh, many masks outside, uh, and you didn't see masks in the dining. And of course, the biggest test was the dining. It's got a huge dining hall. They have at capacity, I guess, at seven eight, or eight hundred. They said they were running at seventy percent capacity or thereabouts. That's still a heck of a lot of people. They had some dining options, but the truth of the matter is, we were in a dining hall that was reasonably filled. Reasonably filled. Uh, people weren't cheek by jowl. But it was... Uh, the tables were all spaced. Spaced, but they weren't... It, it wasn't an It wasn't situation. as bleak and empty looking as, as any, as any as restaurant. other is. places we've been. Any restaurant you've been to in the Most of the months. restaurants we've been to have had have been at the 25%. Or 50 at most. Yeah. And wide spacing. So and this was just... 70 is better. There were a lot of people around and it was fine. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, We made a point of taking advantage of all the outdoor activities. It turns out that if you're concerned about the weather, you really put yourself out there. 
and you kill yourself, which is what we did. So we were we were swimming. <laughs> I'm not in, sure what that means. Well, we were swimming in the lake, 69 yeah. degrees in the lake. For those of you wondering how 69 degrees in the water feels compared to 69 in the air, 69 in the water is cold. But we were out there swimming in the it lake. It was refreshing. Yes, it was refreshing. And uh, it's a wonderful lake. You were it's going a wonderful on lake. about the, the, yes. the composition of the lake water, I think. Is what yes, because uh, it remains neutral. Because of a shale layer underneath or something. I don't know. But uh, this is all I know. When I get out of the water yeah. and I dry off, my skin feels amazing. Really? Amazing. Okay. And uh, so I got into the water every opportunity. Yeah. And we went in uh, when we got there. We went in and it was... A little cloudy and cold the next day. We got in a little swim in the morning just before it rained. Yeah. And then later that afternoon. We were crazy. The sun came out for a few minutes, well, I, so we went in we again. We should say, we were the only ones who did that. We were often in the lake by ourselves or close yes. to it. Yes. At, at, so we the, had no problems. people. No social distancing no. issues in the lake. Yes, it we, was our lake. Yes. And of course, we were there. Well, I shouldn't say of course. We were there in Lawrenceport. To see the uh, musical performances that they had scheduled in the evening, and they had to uh, schedule these for outside because they felt that uh, because of the pandemic, they didn't want to schedule uh, inside because it would be too crowded. And in particular, we wanted to see Helen Sung, who's the uh, jazz uh, pianist who we've seen before there, we've become big fans of. Yes, I like to think of her as the great jazz. Pianist. Right. And we got to see her, though she had to play because it was outdoors. It was a wonderful setting, beautiful setting on the right. dock. Yes. So right. the part of the hotel faces the lake. Right. And there's a boat dock mm-hmm. right opposite uh, all these big porches mm-hmm. off these parlors, etc. Right. And so they set up uh, spotlights on the boat dock and speakers. Yes. And uh, had the musical performers down on the dock and people would sit on the rocking chairs on Mm -hmm. the porch or in our case on boulders by the edge of the lake or just come out of the balconies from the hotel rooms themselves and watch the performances and it was it was a marvelous sight and the temperatures were pretty comfortable Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, it, was it was great. Beautiful. And of course, the only compromise was uh, Helen was using an electronic keyboard. They couldn't wheel a big piano out there on yeah. the dock. Which, but it was fine. Which was fine. And amplified she's, music. She's fantastic. Yeah. You know, there's a, she has such power in her playing. It's so well, physical uh, that I'm disappointed not to see her play an acoustic piano. Right. But uh, it was still great. Mm-hmm. And we actually we had a lot of fun because we kept running into Helen uh, in the hotel the few days we were there. We don't know Helen, but we feel like we know her. Well, we don't know if she was stalking us or if we were stalking her. It's a very close call. But something was going on. Something was going on. Helen actually went in the water. Yeah, we ran into her at the lake. I believe yeah. there are only three or four people at the lake. So the odds against uh, running into Helen there were long. Uh, And it got to the point where Ms. Granger uh, at one point just called out to Helen when she was going by in a canoe, 
the second time, by the and, way, and she recommended was by that she get uh, well, on first, her way to uh, her performance. <laughs> Tamsin yells out to Helen, who honestly we don't know, says, "Helen, is that you?" And Helen, without missing a beat, say, "Yes, hi, how are you?" And we have a short conversation. And Tamsin says, as she described, "Helen, you better get back there. Uh, you know, you got to get ready for your performance." And her uh, her friend, her uh, uh, her her. Um, the, the man accompanying her, who was in a nearby canoe, said, not a problem. If Helen can't make it, I'll play piano. Yeah, so, none, none of us were looking forward to that. So we were joking about that. So, we, you know, the funny thing about... Uh, uh, we thinking, well, listen, I'll just say this. Yeah. If you can't go swimming with Helen's son, yeah. at least listen to her music. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, the one thing that I was reminded of was that uh, we one of the places we had seen her was at Smalls, which was which is a... Which was and is... A, uh, a performance space in the village, and it is small, living up to its name. You know, 60, 80 people packed in cheek by jowl. I don't know if we'll ever, ever see that again. Uh, and there was an article in the Times, by coincidence, this very week, saying a lot of these places are going out of business. Possibly and, and Smalls. Smalls. Well, Smalls is converted to a not-for-profit. Uh, and we'll see if they make it or not. And they're relying on streaming. Uh, but I was reminded of uh, Smalls, of course, when we saw Helen. But anyway, you, you had a, a comment about the hotel accommodations. Well, this yes. is the thing. Yes. This is now, um, it turns out when yeah. you go to a hotel right. during all of this, it's standard procedure now that they don't clean your room on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. That's fine with me. Right. But that also means they don't replenish your little teeny tiny toiletries on a daily basis okay which annoyed me tremendously because we're out there we're swimming in the lake we're hiking in the woods we're doing the yoga we're doing all kinds of workouts and uh, and you have to you have to get dressed for dinner so so we we, we were using a lot of soap doesn't it seem to you daniel that during this time when one should be Washing up extra, yeah. washing up more give you that soap. one might, you know, provide well, extra soap. We were able, to, not less soap. We were able to resolve that problem, but I see your point. But the, the, what I thought was well, more. Why should saying, I have to call and well, say to well, do that? Yes, yeah. what, yes, okay. But please send me more soap. I'm a normal. What was person. a more interest to me was what you raised before, saying in fact that uh, the unions are protesting to this practice, well, saying that the cleaning people are exposed to more problematic germs this way than if you had normal cleaning schedule, which I thought was interesting. Well, I, well, here's the thing. We were talking about how much of this is necessary from a responsible right. uh, perspective of following the rules right. and how much of these practices are meant to economize Right. So that these hotels can, you know, make a little more money or right. make some money. Right. You know, how much of this is economic and how much of this is really, you know, I don't know, medical or whatever. Um, and I don't really begrudge them for trying to economize. Right. I mean, ha- hotels like restaurants, they're running at less than full capacity. Mm-hmm. I understand it's tough to make a living. Okay. I don't begrudge them that. But, uh, you know, let's, it seems silly to mask it in, uh, you know. Well, but particularly since, as you told me before, that unions are objecting, saying that this is on the contrary. Yeah, so the hotels are saying, we're trying to keep our workers safe. Right. So we don't want to send them in to clean people's rooms. We don't then 
want them exposed to the people, the guests, any more than they need to. We don't want the guests to have to be exposed to them. Okay, whatever. Um, but uh, the unions uh, have raised this issue that um, actually it is more work and maybe more exposure to be having to clean up a room that somebody's been in for several days without any cleaning yeah. uh, than to go in on a daily basis and keep things Which tidied is interesting. up. Interesting. That's not to me. Uh, wouldn't have thought that, but they might be right. In which case, doesn't make any sense. So uh, who knows? But look, I and, think, and you know, as a as a mother cleaning up after little children for many, many years, yeah. it is a little easier if you do a little bit every day yeah, yeah. as opposed well, to look, waiting till just, you know, just the summarize. end of the week. And we didn't care. We don't need to clean every day. But it, it is kind of funny if, in fact, the, it's, it, the procedure is, is being uh, suggested or, in fact, imposed on the logic that it's safer if, in fact, it's not safer. That just seems... Weird, but in any right, event, and and the and and the workers are getting less time. Well, that's for sure. And then, okay, and they're, they're, they're working harder. Hours. They're working harder while they're and, there. And they're not They've got paid. more to do right. to get the room ready for the next group, and uh, yet uh, people have you right. know lost jobs because there's less work to go around. Well, so, in any event, so we come back from Mohawk, and no sooner are we back from Mohawk, but the next day. We have uh, you dragged our, our me annual Sourlands bike ride and screaming a thirty-nine mile bike ride in the Sourlands in New Jersey. Kicking and, the and screaming. I think it's, the Sourlands is fairly described as a mountain range, isn't it? I mean, it's it's hilly. I don't, I don't even know what it is. It's, it's some ridge. It's uh, something. It's, it's beautiful. That's but, the main thing. But it's a lot of climbing. It's on beautiful. The we had a beautiful day. Saturday Central New morning. Jersey. Yeah. one of the most beautiful the spots. Sourlands. In, the Sourlands. Yeah. And bicyclists love it. Well, and they people ride in that area all the time, but uh, there is this one ride, this uh, you know organized ride that we join in because we don't have we don't go on rides like that on our own, no. right? Um, we want and, the snacks. Uh, we need the snacks. And we've been going for a few years, yeah. and uh, we've had some great rides. We've had some, you know, rainy cold rides as well. But uh, ye- yesterday was a beautiful day. Oh, it was fantastic. It was beautiful. Uh, and uh, again, because of the pandemic, the, the regular ride was canceled. But uh, folks were re- requesting. Well, it was a virtual ride. Virtual ride. Which, which mentions- doesn't mean you get to sit at home and watch riders no, on, doesn't on Zoom. It doesn't but mean But what you had to do was download the route and just do it on your own. Right. And you could do it any day you wanted. You right. didn't have to do it on Saturday. We happened to do it on Saturday, which would have been the traditional day right. for the group ride. And actually, in the parking lot we left from, other people showed right. up. But, but, but a very small fraction just of the folks who normally do it. But it was nice to see some other cyclists. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was nice to pass a few people. Oh, well, of course. Uh, we're passing and it was even like not crazy. bad getting passed by some people. Well, that you know, so you rarely have, happens. You have this little sense of community. <laughs> but it was... Uh, Truly. Um, you chat at the people in the old parking lot afterwards saying that was a tough ride, but we did. Yeah. And, and it wasn't 30 miles. It was 39 yeah. miles. I was not looking for 39 miles. The third miles. quarter was... I was, was happy with was, 30. was very challenging. And it's, so it's one of those situations, and some folks uh, in riding couples might identify with this, where you're saying to yourself, as I was saying to myself, God, this is really challenging. This is really tough. I don't know if I can make it. And you say to yourself, and I'm saying... But if Tamsin's doing it, I'm doing it. 
<laughs> behind tabs and, and she pulled me through. So we had a great yeah, time. I no, had no desire to do this ride and it was fabulous. So I'm glad. All your idea. Glad. <laughs> Know what you're talking about glad i got oh. roped into all right. it all right so and, and after we after we finished the ride yeah and then we had usually go, at the end of these rides we collapse you get snacks yeah well that's that's all true right? too you get lunch yeah. you you know maybe there's music going on Nothing this, like this that one's thing. famous for ice cream sundays right. after the barbecue and pizza and nothing, nothing. nada yeah. not even a porta potty and uh, in that, uh, you know, half-mast state, yes. we dragged ourselves over to uh, the Rutgers Landscape Nursery on Route 202 because Lisa Walsh was part of their, they were having a big sort of plein air mm. festival. They mm. had all these artists set up in the nursery, mm-hmm. you know, scattered amongst the trees and bushes and flowers and containers and uh, painting away and uh, selling their works. And so uh, we got to see Lisa and her family. Mm-hmm. And uh, she actually was coming up with some great watercolors on site. On site. It was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, one at least one of them, I know, sold as soon as she finished it. Exactly. You know? She, she so, almost didn't get a chance to finish it. That's how quickly but, they were selling. But how fun is that? They also seem to have dancers. I think we missed the dancers. Uh, no, I saw the dancers. Yeah. You, you didn't miss too much. <laughs> and uh, they had some music going on. Yeah. So that also, again, everybody was wearing uh, masks. Yeah. Right? And um, yeah, that was silly, really. But yeah, no, it didn't. You know, just they weren't in close proximity. It doesn't matter. Yeah, okay? okay, just relax. All right, yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, even even following restrictions, yeah. there was again. It was fun to see mm-hmm. people do something sort of right. normal and fun. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was all outdoors. It was all outdoors, and it was a very pleasant day. It was the same day as the bike ride, uh, and uh, we had a good time. And the only other thing that would make this seem more like fall, more like a normal fall, would be seeing some football. But there is football. So we get back to the house and we're, and you're asking me, is there college football? Because that's normally what we do. And I said, as a matter of fact, the Notre Dame is playing. And sure enough, uh, there is college football. I mean, there's a lot of college football that's not being played. But a lot of it is. I mean, just on a quick observation... I saw a listing of like 50 teams that are playing. So I'm, you know, without getting into whether they should or they shouldn't be. In other words, there was an op-ed piece in uh, the Wall Street Journal by someone from Notre Dame saying that this is not a money grab by Notre Dame. That yeah, they, right. That, on Tamsin, I'm telling mm-hmm. what they said. Mm-hmm. Not a money grab, that they're sure that they're safe, that this is, the kids are on the campus there. It's part of uh, life. As a matter of fact, the kids are at the games. The students do attend the games at Notre Dame. But, but they were they, spaced out. They were spaced. Well, of course, they're always spaced out. They're college students, but uh, they're uh, they restricted attendance to college students and a few others. And you know, all these universities sell a lot of tickets to people besides college students. So you had largely empty stands. But in any event, um, they're playing yesterday, and we're watching a little bit of uh, pro football today. They have a full slate of pro football, and that seems again odd because you don't have people in the stands. But you know, on television. It looks 75% like football. So my mother was thrilled yesterday because, you know, if uh, you're just stuck inside with nothing to do and you're 95 years old, um, she said she had just 
an abundance of choices because she likes to watch sports yeah. on TV and uh, she couldn't get over it because there was football, there was baseball, well, there was tennis, right. there was the Tour de France. Right. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, all of that is nice because if nothing else, it gives us something else to talk about and think well, about. Well, you know, the th- Thursday in particular was a day that they were talking about as uh, a day worth marking because the four major sports we're all on at the same time. And that's uh-huh. basketball, hockey, pro football, and Major League Baseball for the first time ever because those seasons normally don't overlap entirely, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but they are now. Uh-huh. So, you know, again, uh, if you like that kind of stuff, and as it turns out, we do, uh, it's nice to have it, as you say. It's nice to have it available. Right. It's something to talk about, something to watch. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, we'll see. So it turns out that uh, I didn't realize this, but... This was the 50th anniversary to the day of the New York Marathon, um, which seems odd because it seems early, but that's when right. it used to be run. Well, for the first time. Yeah, so the first time. In, uh, it was run at this time, right? I mean, 19, September 13th, 1970. Okay, normally it is later. Yes. Because, because it's cooler. Yeah. It, it's, if you catch a day that's uh, like 80 degrees or something, that's a terrible t- day to r- run a marathon. Right. But the first marathon was Sunday, September 13th, 1970, and this I did know, was that all they did was run laps in the park. Uh, around and around mile and around laps. Central yes. Park. Yeah, so it's four and a half laps or something like that. I think it's 5.2 miles to a lap, full lap. Uh, there were 127 starters and just 55 finishers. So that's a much smaller event. Uh, and it's funny because the, uh, the winner was a fellow named Gary uh, Murky. Uh, and he, uh, wasn't going to run at all, um, cause he's a fight, was a firefighter and he had had a few calls the night before and he didn't feel well. And he said to his wife, I think I'll pass. I'm too tired. Let's just hang out at home. Yeah, and she and said, his wife said, nothing doing. You're going because I'm stuck in the house with three kids. We need something. We need you know, to get out. Need we an need an outing. Like that. So this guy runs and he, he, he's not the favorite. He's the second favorite. He, he and has, he's also like 55 years no, old. No, 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 no. That was someone else? Okay, okay. So he's, he gets the number two race bib because he's the number two seed. The first seed is a fellow named Ted Corbett who was in the Olympic marathon, except the Olympic marathon he was in, in ni- was in 1952. So he was 50 years old. He was the first seed, a 50-year-old. <laughs> All right? Uh, and and there, I, how many people were in the marathon? I, I think I mentioned there was 127 starters. Oh, okay. Just 57, yeah. finishers. Um, but in any event, uh, cutting through it, uh, so Murky won uh, in two hours and 31 minutes was a pretty good time. I, I think at that time, hardly respectable, really. It's still, you know, it's, it's a mark of distinction, even today, if you run a two-hour, 30-minute marathon. And uh, this fellow Corbett uh, came in fifth or something like that. Uh, there was uh, one a woman in the field, Nina, Nina Kusick. Uh, she didn't finish, um, uh, although she, you know, had finished a marathon in Boston some months before. Uh, in any event, so this uh, fellow... Um, yeah. <laughs> There are a couple of funny things here. One is that the Times says that, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. They only had a small article in the Times covering the marathon. Well, you know, just for the record, that's one more article than the Times had yesterday covering Major League Baseball. So, you know, what that means, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, um, this fellow who wrote the article, George Hirsch, who's a runner himself, um, uh, looked up uh, Gary Murky, who's still around. He's 80 years old. And he said to him, uh, he mentioned to him that they're doing the, 
the marathon virtually uh, in the same way the bike race is virtual. And this, you could right. plot your own course, you do it, but you can run it. And so he asked Murky uh, if he uh, considered running the, the marathon this year at the age of 80. Uh, Murky said he still runs most days. And he said, I do love a challenge, George, but honestly, I'm not sure I feel like running a marathon. And then, of course, Hurst reminded him that's the same way he felt in 1970 when he went, went out and won the marathon. So maybe he should consider it. So who knows? Maybe Murky went out and did it. I don't know. But uh, lots changed there since then. All right, let's get something more intellectual, Tamsin. You have to put some intellectual content in this. Yeah, I'm not really in the mood, but I, you know. I will give it the old college try. Right. Uh, in an um, opinion article in uh, the Wall Street Journal, there's an interview with E.D. Hirsch, who is, uh, I guess, a you know, professor, educator, literary critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's who, retired now. But yeah, retired. and uh, founder of, um, what's it called, the Core Knowledge Foundation. Mm-hmm. So he has... Uh, some ideas about learning, and uh, they're really uh, kind of knowledge-based mm-hmm. and information-based as opposed to, you know, uh, sort of skill-based, right. which seems to be the popular uh, format. And uh, he says, and he's, um, I guess, in his 80s at this point, um, he said he was... Uh, they did a Zoom interview with him from his home in Maine, and uh, he said, you know, you would be shocked at how little content and uh, little coherence there is happening in most classrooms today. Right. And, yeah, and it's possible the parents are being a little bit shocked about uh, what uh, is going on in classes by, you know, participating in it mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of these remote uh, Situations where the parents are having to, you know, supervise and interact. Well, I didn't really think of that. Yeah, here's a wonderful phrase at at the beginning of the article, where they say that uh, the current fashion is for teachers to be a quote guide on the side instead of a quote sage on the stage. Right, and that's what he objects to. Right, and uh, well, I understand that uh, to a certain extent. Um, In general. Lectures are often the least um, productive way of transferring knowledge, okay? There is no question, but that's what I like to do, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Right? That's what all teachers Um, like to do. Yeah, I do too. Um, But you have to, I think, uh, you know, incorporate that with... um, But but, but his point is he believes in a core curriculum, much of which is prescriptive. You have to find a way. Regardless, you have to find a way of... Making sure the knowledge is delivered, making sure right. that students are learning not just how to learn, right. okay, but uh, learning facts, right. learning information, content to content right. Right. to go forward with. Um, he he would say, you know, this there was this whole fad for give the students uh, worksheets, etc., and the teacher just, you know, kind of floats around mm-hmm. and encourages them that the students are really teaching themselves, mm-hmm. which is uh, completely bizarre right. to me, okay? Um, then, 
we had that experience a couple of, you know, with the, some of our kids when they would get into advanced programs. Mm -hmm. And what advanced programs meant in their school was that they would go off to a room with other smart kids and be given packets to fill out mm -hmm. while the teachers stayed with mm -hmm. the rest of the class. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they were so smart they could teach themselves, which I think is doesn't make sense to me mm -hmm. at all. Um, so anyway, it was interesting to see his views. Um, he's been writing books. Um, he's famous for books, you know, that uh, go through the grades, what your kindergarten kindergartner needs to know, what your first grader needs to know. And they become very popular with homeschooling parents, oh, really? etc. Et mm -hmm. And that, you know, th there are many schools that actually use the core foundation principle, the, you know, the um, core knowledge language uh, curriculum, language mm -hmm. arts curriculum. And uh, it's been showing up in the students' uh, success, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, compared with uh, other students not using uh, those things. Uh, places like South Bronx Classical Charter Schools, charter schools are using them, uh, in other words. So, um it was interesting to read his thoughts. Let me see if there's anything else I want to mention. Uh, yeah, he said it's not about just uh, developing problem-solving skills. Uh, you need to um, not only create a thirst for knowledge, but actually deliver on some of that mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that resonated with me. I was glad to uh, you know read all of, about that. Um and it made me think a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, my education at this point, which is uh, largely happening in my car, mm -hmm. listening to Stephen Fry mm -hmm. read his book, Mythos. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Stephen Fry, the actor, right? right. Uh, the, Jeeves and Worcester. Jeeves and Worcester with uh, Hugh Laurie. Mm -hmm. Turns out, well, of course, he's a great narrator. Um, and uh, I just... Uh, read that he's done all the um, British versions of the Harry Potter books. Oh, really? And he would be terrific mm. for that. But this is his own stuff. He wrote the book. He writes, and uh, he's a fun, fun writer. But but the subject matter is... The is mythology. It's Greek mythology. It's real detailed, really... Well, that's what the, I'm telling real you. stuff. Listen, I know some mythology. Yeah, but this is really it. I, I don't mean, know nothing compared to Stephen right. Fry. This is not superficial. This, this is, is deep, the, the deep, story. deep, deep dive. You know, yeah, right. You know, not everybody's going to go for it. But the how's, way he... How Zeus and Prometheus created man. I mean, who knew? Yeah, well, even the earlier um, discussion of chaos it's it just you know um a lot more than well, it does I, stick with you i've listened to well, some of it and it does stick. all with right you. but the the fun of it is yeah. and uh, you know every once in a while i make you watch some kind of um program about mythology all yeah. right and it's usually fairly dull yeah. okay but he has a great knack for telling a story mm -hmm. and he uses all these you know contemporary just british idiomatic phrases that always tickle us yanks yeah. um and uh it's just fun to listen to and it's quite funny and uh very informative yeah. so uh when you see somebody do something that is both interesting mm -hmm. but entertaining at the same time bravo so stephen fry mythos 
And I heard he has a uh, sequel called Heroes. All right. Well, so we'll these have been out for a while. We'll Easy to, to get on Audible. We'll you off. could read the book. You know, I'm probably going to buy the hard copy because just so chock full of fun information. All right. It is interesting. Surprisingly interesting. So here, going from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous, here's two quick stories, two sports stories. Maybe they're sports. Here's a headline. Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Zach Wheeler rips fingernail putting on pants. Uh, I'm not making that up. Uh, that's a headline just the Hate other day. Hate when that happens. Yeah. Uh, well, putting on pants or ripping the fingernail? What's, you know, what, what's your complaint? The, uh, I'm a big Zach Wheeler fan. Pitched for the Mets uh, last year. Having a great season for the Phillies this year. Hasn't lost a game for them 4-0. Uh, and he said he might lose, uh, ripped a fingernail, putting on his pants, delaying his next start for two days, perhaps longer. He might even lose the nail on his middle finger. He said, just one of those stupid things. I tripped a little bit, lost my balance, and my jeans yanked out of my hand. You know, I got to, seriously, I bet that hurt. Oh, I don't doubt that. Uh, but, but, but how many times if I had, uh, situation haven't you been in a situation where someone says wait a minute i can't do that i just broke a nail yeah well this is you know the the people have been giving women a hard time about that for years you almost feel you got to come up with a better story if you hurt your nail like that you can't say i ripped my fingernail putting on my pants i mean you got to do something else you know i was hit by a truck or you know i got caught in the door you got to come up with a better story. Well, so, maybe maybe it works because it is such a rare experience in this. He COVID says he's had this age. problem before. Uh, <laughs> I swear to God. In any event, and so how far removed from that? No, he didn't really say that. He did say he said he's, I, he's had a bad had my problem with this nail before. It gets catches it catches on things. He left it at that. Okay, literally. I he think said he that. needs a little trip to the yeah. Manny Petty. Yeah, I don't know what he needs, but uh, that's a bad thing. I mean, they're in a pennant race, honestly. They're they're this close to the, <laughs> not making the playoffs. They're losing a doubleheader to the Marlins today, and he's not pitching because he can't zip up his pants. Uh, the other thing, which is, oh, you know, it's a little more serious, but just as odd, is the uh, Djokovic situation. The Novak Djokovic, as everybody knows, was thrown out of the U.S. Open because there was a moment when he was disappointed in his own play. And as players sometimes do, even I did when I was playing tennis a little bit competitively, just put his head down and sort of hit the ball toward the back, uh, you know, to the wall behind him. And he happened to catch uh, a line judge who was sitting there. He didn't hit it that hard, but he somehow caught her in the worst place, in the throat or something like that, and she was in distress. And uh, they threw him out of the tournament. Um, Well, because that's the rule. No, that's actually it's not. But I don't want to get into that. But okay. it, let me put it this way: uh, there is a rule. There is a rule which uh, read one way would have indicated that they had very little choice, but but to throw them out under those circumstances. But read as a lawyer might read it, uh, they had all kinds of discretion to read it. It's not to throw them out. But number one, I'm not an advocate of getting lawyers involved in all situations. Number two, I have since learned because I didn't fully realize that Djokovic is not popular with the officials of pro tennis or the U.S. Open. And that if it had been someone else like named with a name like Federer who had done this, he would not have been thrown out of the tournament. Why is he not popular? You know, I don't know. He's just unconventional. I don't know all the details, but it, I've read several articles that said he's just not People well, popular not. by the powers that be. Hmm. And, and I think he speaks out when he thinks something's not the way it should be. And I think that's one way to become unpopular with those folks. But here's the funny thing about it. It didn't have to have happen at all uh, even if he hit the ball, here's why. 
because they're starting to use technology to make line calls at the tournament. And they use a system called Hawkeye Live. And Hawkeye Live is at the point now, it's becoming the convention or about to be the convention or the standard for being for making line calls, thereby removing the need for line umpires. And they used it at the U.S. Open at every court but two. In other words, every court but two. So there are only two courts, uh, and this was one of them, that had line judges at all. And the question is why... Did these courts have line judges? And the reason that some believe, a lot of people believe, is that because the fashion company, Ralph Lauren, was one of the sponsors of the tournament and had put together the outfits of the line judges. And for that reason, Ralph Lauren was insisting, or at least requesting, that there be line judges at certain prominent courts. And that's the only reason that woman was there for Ralph Lauren. So uh, it makes it just even weirder and weirder. So it's right up there. I don't think it matters. So he knew it would be televised. Lauren. Oh, oh yeah. The main Ralph courts Lauren were televised. Knew it would be televised. And, and his, and his so, outfit would be on television. Okay. So, you know, it doesn't rise to the heights of the Zach Wheeler or the depths of the Zach Wheeler, but it's pretty close. Okay. So there you go. So we have a few obituaries. Right. Um, Sir Terence Conran passed away. At eighty-eight, um, and uh, you know he, you know him, Conran's namesake of Conran's the furniture right, store, right? Right. Uh, so he had all these stores with, uh, you know, allegedly uh, making uh, great design, more affordable, mm-hmm. very popular during what it, what was it like the eighties mm-hmm. uh, in into the nineties. Uh, well. Just barely into the 90s. Yeah, it used to be and, in Lexington Avenue in the City Corp area. They had a right. big Conrad store. Right. And, and that was the height of furniture fashion. Right. Well, well, I thought it was the coolest store ever. Everyone thought it was the coolest store. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it was very exciting to go there. Well, it turns out he, he led a pretty interesting life. And, of mm-hmm. course, the, the Conrad's, you know, furniture stores actually kind of go out of business. Mm-hmm. He has a, a, a zillion of them, and he goes out of business by 1990. But then he has all these restaurants mm-hmm. and how all these other ventures. So he's a guy who constantly reinvented himself, mm-hmm. which included having many wives. He had four different wives. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, really? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, then, uh, you know, he ends up with like 14 grandchildren. Okay, so he was a busy guy. He... Um, was blind in one eye mm-hmm. because of an accident he had uh, um, woodworking or something when he was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, he only had one job his whole life mm-hmm. uh, and that lasted about a year. But that was when he was 19. Was the his, rest of he was... He ran businesses. He was a serial entrepreneur. A serial entrepreneur. As we like to say. A serial okay. monogamist also. <laughs> yes. Um, so, kind of interesting. He, uh, I'm, you know, I introduced him as Sir Terrence. He only used that to get uh, like restaurant, restaurant reservations. Yeah, right, right, okay. right. I do the um, same thing sometimes. It's uh, perfectly so, permissible. Anyway, it was interesting. It was fun to think back about Conrad's right. and the excitement of going there. Oh, yeah, it was a big deal. And et cetera. Well, this was a big deal, too. And Earth. then also uh, Eleanor Jacobs, who brought... Earth shoes right. to the United Earth States. Earth shoes were a big deal. Died at 91. I thought it was a big deal for a longer time. They make it appear that it was a big deal for just a few years. Yeah, and which, which I sort of believe. But I 
I sort of assumed I had stopped buying Earth shoes, but they still existed somewhere. But pretty much... Well, people don't know Earth shoes. There were shoes with a negative heel. Right. So anyway, let me tell the story. Sure. Quickly, the story is uh, she had, uh, you know, chronic back pain. Yeah. She and her husband were on uh, vacation in Denmark. She comes across these shoes and uh, they make her feel so much better that uh, later in the course of the vacation, she says to her husband, we got to bring these to the United States. We got to open up a store in the United States. And uh, she goes back to who, you know, ever runs the stores in um, Denmark. Denmark. And uh, they're actually, she's actually quite... Interested in the proposition yeah. because uh, Eleanor Jacobs and her husband have never been in the shoe business. And this person wanted to get, you know, be part of the back to nature right. uh, movement. And in fact, uh, that's who they appealed to at the beginning. Um, and that's why she called them Earth Shoes. Uh, she gets this idea on Earth Day and, uh, you know, hippies go crazy for them. Also, college students. There was an Earth shoe store in Princeton. I did buy Earth shoes. Did you? Yes, oh, yeah, I, I had Earth that. shoes. You did, right? Yeah. And you were, uh, you were they were also spender. kind of cute yeah. in a in a Hobbit a sort hobbit of way. way. Yes. yes yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so anyway, and and again, she, you know, that was sort of a flash in the pan. They had a huge. She had a huge expansion. It sort of crashed, and uh, then she went on. Actually, she had uh, studied art history. Oh. And she goes on to work for, I think, Sotheby's yeah. uh, and some other galleries. Uh, it's a, similar, it's a story we're familiar career. with. Earth shoes to art history. Right. So thinking back, thinking back on some of those, you know, Girls shops we had. Stick together. In the right. early days. So Lou Brock passed away this week. Uh, and uh, Lou Brock was a great baseball player, in particular a uh, great uh, base stealer. Uh, Did he invent the Brock umbrella or just... Uh, uh, I'll call him the Brock umbrella okay, in just right, a sec. Let's right. establish who he is before okay. we go crazy. Uh, he was um, he ended up with 3,000 hits, which is a, an accomplishment in the major leagues. So he's a pretty good hitter also, and well, more than pretty good hitter in, in, in the Hall of Fame. What's interesting about him, I always love these stories, and of course you're going to see them less and less. But... You know, uh, he, he comes sort of with, with very little baseball background, and you know his back, background is such that he was he was born in a family of sharecroppers in Arkansas who picked cotton. He went to attended a one room schoolhouse, uh, but at the age of nine, he's fiddling around with this old Philco radio, and he picks up a baseball game, and he hears the story of Jackie Robinson, the black man being in the major leagues, and he's inspired hmm. by that, only because his Philco picked this up on the dial. It's not Arkansas. There were no teams in Arkansas. Yeah. And uh, so he decides that that's what he's going to try to pursue, but he doesn't have a ball or a bat, and he basically you know, plays by swatting rocks with tree branches. This is apparently true. He got a scholarship, an academic scholarship, to Southern University in Louisiana, and he said, you know, I have a little background in this. Let me go fight for the baseball team. He makes the baseball team. And next thing you know, he's picked up by the Chicago Cubs. Oh, my god! And he's in the major league. I mean, what there, a story. There, there, are, there are a lot of stories like that in the 20s and the 30s. The mm-hmm. idea that this is happening, um, you know, in 1950s is bizarre. Really? But in any event, there he is. He's in the Cubs. Uh, he doesn't do great for the Cubs. He's hitting about 250 and he's struggling. And... 
There's a big trade, a famous trade, which I sort of remember in 1964, only because the guy was traded for was famous, not Brock. He was traded for a pitcher on, on the uh, Cardinals named Ernie Brolio, who uh, led the league in ERA. It's, it's you know, least earned runs the previous year. And uh, people said, well, what are they trading Ernie Brolio for, the Cubs, for this guy who's a nobody? Uh, and a matter of fact, among the people thought that was uh, Bob Gibson, who was on the Cardinals. They, only, they had two African-American ballplayers, Bob Gibson and Kurt Flood. Brock would be the third. You would think, you know, Gibson might be welcome. And Gibson is quoted here saying, uh, I thought it was a dumb trade. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't even remember facing this guy. I thought, who would we trade Brolio for? This guy's like a nobody. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another theory about Bob Gibson, which is he didn't like anybody. So who knows? He didn't even like okay. Tim McCarver right. who was his catcher. But the, the fact of the matter is, he ended up to be a tremendous success. Uh, he stole 40 bases or so that year. The Cardinals won the World Series, and they were off to the races, and he became a great player. And Brock was kind of a smart guy. And you said a moment ago he helped to develop this uh, this product called Brock Umbrella. I you, said, did he help? He did. It was He okay. was behind that. Okay. You, you better describe it. I, you know. It's a, it's a, um, a little, it's a personal umbrella that sits on, it's held on your head yeah. by like a headband. Right. Okay. So that uh, you don't have to be holding uh, a, the a umbrella. A hands-free personal yeah. umbrella. Yeah. It did not catch on. But he, he was not, he, you know, it was like our shoes, except without any catching on. So, but one year it was part of the... Reunions costume. Oh, is that right? That for person? I think my class. It's it might have been another class. Yeah, class of the I station. didn't. I didn't get one. Oh. But uh, can you imagine all these uh, Princeton alums marching down Actually, the uh, lane if, if, with their Brock umbrellas I, I on? Can. And, and you do that because very often during reunions there's a downpour, right. uh, so it's handy. It's uh, sad that I can't imagine it. Uh, well, that's he did that kind of thinking. He also uh, at one point in his career. Decided he would be get an edge in stealing bases if he had films of the various pitchers' deliveries. He didn't have videotape then. So during uh, one uh, spring training, he showed up with his own movie camera, and he was taking films of opposing pitchers. He took a picture. He took a film of uh, Don Drysdale, uh, who's a tough guy. And Don Drysdale stops pitching. He says, "What the hell are you doing with that camera, Brock?" And Brock says, "Just taking home movies." And Drysdale <laughs> says. I don't want to be in your goddamn home movies, Brock. <laughs> and the next time Brock got up, he threw at him. <laughs> so that was, uh, Lou Brock was great. So we end with uh, the uh, journal did a sort of a retrospective on its 10th anniversary issue of uh, its lifestyle section, uh, which is called, what is it called? Off Duty. Off Duty, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the section about $700 sweaters. And... Uh, they have a whole bunch of quotes from almost a page and a half devoted to Dan Neal, who writes their great car column, including a little piece about all the car sounds that he's described from different models over the years. But I'll just read you. They even have a section just devoted to his opening paragraphs, and I'll read you two of them. One was in 2017, and he says, Perhaps it's a sign of the times, but lately I see fewer displays of spontaneous admiration as signals of motorhead fellowship. But the new Honda Civic Type R, which, honest to God, Honda is giving away at $35,000, gets all kinds of love on the streets from all kinds of people with all kinds of student loans. In the world of the attainable, this thing is a supercar. And uh, finally, in 2016, you probably have a driveway to shovel, so I'll get right to the point. 
The 2016 Mazda CX-3 is my new favorite among the slew of mini crossovers with available all-wheel drive. Now take your baby aspirin, grab your shovel, and get out there. Daniel's great. Okay, so that's what we have this week on the 13th of September, uh, which was a fun week. We had a great week, and we look forward to seeing you a week from today. Right. This is Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhau. See you then.